0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: Good morning. Welcome to AM. It's Friday the 20th of October. I'm Sabra Lane coming to you from Nipaluna, Hobart. Israeli airstrikes have pounded locations across the Gaza Strip as aid groups continue to wait for humanitarian supplies to be allowed in. The United Nations Secretary-General, Antonio Guterres, says Hamas should immediately and unconditionally release all of its hostages. And he says Israel must allow aid into the territory.
2: I'm calling for an immediate humanitarian ceasefire. For nearly two weeks, the people of Gaza have gone without any shipments of fuel, food, water, medicine and other essentials. Disease is spreading, supplies are dwindling, people are dying. And I was horrified by the images of death and destruction In the Hal Ali Hospital.
1: In a sign that ground offensive into Gaza is about to begin, Israel's Defense Minister Yoav Galant has visited troops gathered at the Gaza border, telling them they'll soon see Gaza from the inside.
3: There is no
2: forgiveness for this thing. Only total annihilation of the Hamas organisation, terror infrastructures and everything that has to do with terrorists and whoever sent them. Carry on training while there's time. Get organised. Be prepared. The command will come. We count on you. Good luck. And anyone who now sees Gaza from a distance will see it from the inside. I promise you.
1: This is all in response to the attacks on Israel earlier this month, where Hamas militants killed about 1,400 people and took about 200 hostages. The family of some hostages have spoken in Tel Aviv, be- begging for their release. Hadas Koleront's two children are hostages. You can't make wars at the expense of children and babies. This is a world problem. It's not my problem. The whole world has to scream and to ask for humanity. And I think, and I pray, and I beg in, and I ask even Hamas, this moment you have the opportunity to show that you still have humanity. And the government, stop fight, stop the military actions, and bring our children home. Our Middle East correspondent, Alison Horne, is in Ashdod in southern Israel. Alison, is there any indication of when Israel will order troops into Gaza for the ground assault that leaders have been promising?
4: Well, I think it could be soon. We have heard in the last couple of hours uh, from Israel's Defence Minister Yoav Gallant, who has been visiting the hundreds of troops that have been stationed around the the Gaza border here. Uh, And on that visit, he told the troops that they had been seeing um, Gaza from the outside, and soon they would see it from the inside. which is is the strongest indication yet that uh, this ground offensive that has been promised could could eventuate at any point to uh, deliver what Israel has effectively said would be an an annihilation of Hamas on the ground so uh, we are all sort of waiting and uh, there was some sort of suggestion that now that the US president Joe Biden has been and left and today the um, UK prime minister as well has come and left uh, that you know the diplomatic attempts are sort of over and it almost seems like there's been a Green light that has been given um, for this possible ground offensive.
1: And what's happening with the delivery of humanitarian aid that was supposed to enter Gaza?
4: Well, there are expectations that that will happen within a few hours. Friday is the day that has been agreed upon by the US President Joe Biden in his negotiations with Egypt, uh, where all those trucks are currently lined up on the Egyptian border, more than 100 trucks. Uh, Today, we have seen on the Gaza side, there has been some attempts to repair the roads that have been hit by Israeli airstrikes and pretty extensively damaged by Israeli airstrikes in preparation for some of that aid to be allowed in in the next couple of hours. But I think it's important to note, Sabra, that only 20 trucks have been agreed upon so far or given permission to go in. And that's just a fraction of the sort of humanitarian aid that is needed in there. We know that there are hundreds of thousands of Gazans that have run out of food and water. Doctors at hospitals have been telling us horrific stories this week of how they've run out of pain medication. They've been operating on people without anaesthesia. And that's the sort of urgent supplies that need to get in there. And the UN says that 20 trucks is nowhere near sufficient. They actually say they need at least 100 trucks per day to go into Gaza to try and meet the needs of that humanitarian crisis there.
1: Middle East correspondent Alison Horn in Ashdod in southern Israel. Australia and South Korea have signed agreements aimed at boosting defence cooperation. Australia's Defence Minister Richard Marles visited South Korea and Japan this week as both nations try to bolster alliances to deal with regional instability. North Asia correspondent James Oten reports.
2: The Defence Minister received the usual military honours after touching down in Japan for bilateral talks. With mutual concern over China, the two nations have rapidly deepened military relations. After all, Australia is the first country to have a special agreement with Japan that allows for quick deployment of troops to each other's territory. It came into effect in August. Here's the Defence Minister Richard Miles.
0: There is a very strong intent to develop um, a volume of activity between Japan and Australia which puts the Reciprocal Access Agreement to
2: work. With South Korea, another close friend of Australia, there's room to grow. The country's military resources are typically tied up dealing with North Korea, a country keeping the region on edge with its aggressive posturing and missile program, but recently Seoul's been looking beyond the peninsula and it sees a more tense environment. Russia's deepening military relations with Pyongyang, buying weapons to feed its invasion of Ukraine, while also seeking to help North Korea develop better technology. And China's threatening behaviour towards Taiwan is also causing concern. To deal with such issues, South Korea sees an obvious partner... Down Under. We
0: we are seeing Korea looking much more into uh, the region and indeed beyond that the world. When you talk to the Koreans about this they articulate that as they deal with very unique situation in terms of North Korea. that as, that as that becomes more and more difficult, they find security by engaging
2: with the world. The Memorandum of Understanding, signed between Australia and South Korea, says it'll increase military interoperability and allow for more complex military exercises.
1: It's putting more sustenance to the words, the, all the nice words that have been spoken about this greater bilateral relations between Korea and Australia.
2: Dr. Go Myung Hyun is from the Azan Institute for Policy Studies in Seoul.
1: I don't think South Koreans want to be blindsided by other threats. Right? Uh, they they are aware of uh, China looming over the horizon, and 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 then Russia is now a new entrant to the threat landscape in, uh, in the Korean Peninsula, given the how fast both Russia and North Korea are getting close to each other.
2: Tom Corbin from the United States Studies Centre says maritime security is an obvious area to cooperate. Some of this will be defence-focused. Some of this will also need to be development-focused. Here's Defence Minister Richard Miles again. We're on a journey
0: there. Um, this is not the end point by any means. Um, and But we're, but I think there is a real intent to take this to a place we've not been before. From our point of view, having a more engaged career in the region is a, of, of enormous benefit.
2: A benefit that's now being realised. This is James Oathen in Tokyo, reporting for AM.
1: The federal government's offering funding of up to $1.1 million to social enterprises that are helping disadvantaged people into jobs. Leaders in the sector say the funding is long overdue, with many social businesses already playing a crucial role in reducing unemployment. Oliver Gordon reports.
5: This Melbourne cafe looks like any other, but it's not. It's a social enterprise, and some of the staff, like 17 year old Monique, are doing special training programs.
0: It feels a lot more secure than like a regular job. Like, I know that I'm guaranteed safety and help and stuff like that.
5: With her social worker in tow, Monique has been able to learn about hospitality and horticulture in the nursery attached to the cafe. She hopes one day to transition to full time work with the organization.
0: I decided that. I would do their fast track to work program um, for the first two months and hopefully then I can get into paid to work.
5: Monique's employer is Rebecca Scott, co-founder of the social enterprise organisation STREET.
6: A social enterprise is uh, a business that exists for a social or environmental purpose and it invests at least 50% of its profits back into its mission. This is a 100% charity organisation and it exists to change young lives
5: for a younger person to end up working with street they need to have complex needs.
6: Our organization, you know, as well as training them in, you know, hospitality skills for example, we have a full care team that sits behind there, psychologists, youth workers, social workers, a therapy dog, all of that team provide all of the personalized support that a young person might need.
5: In an effort to get more young people into employment, the federal government has allocated funding to support social enterprises. Rebecca Scott says it's long overdue.
6: We bridge gaps everywhere and and we make those unemployment queues a lot smaller as well.
5: The government is seeking proposals from social enterprises, which could see some organisations get a financial boost. The grants will range from $220,000 up to $1.1 million. They'll target groups offering young people, First Nations people, mature age people and women from diverse backgrounds pathways to employment. Jess Moore is the CEO of Social Enterprise Australia and sees social enterprises playing a greater role in the employment space moving forward.
6: For way too long, we have had an employment services system that pays providers of universal services to help people get into employment and that pays employers in the formal wage subsidy when they employ someone who's been shut out of work. But most of that funding has been off-limits to social enterprises What doesn't make sense in that is social enterprises are often the employers of people who are otherwise shut out of work and they have higher costs to run a business than most.
5: She says the pandemic and the shocks it brought to the jobs market proved there was a group of people not being served by existing employment initiatives.
6: Even though we saw a massive drop in the unemployment rate in Australia, for people most shut out of work, they remain shut out of work. And so it's not just that there are not enough jobs, there is a reality that people need a different kind of support than the current employment services system offers um, for them to change that for themselves.
5: Jess Moore is optimistic about the future of social enterprises.
6: We're starting to see change in government and if that change keeps happening, I think we're going to see big growth in job-focused social enterprise and big changes in Australia for people who've been shut out of work.
1: And Jess Moore is the Chief Executive of Social Enterprises Australia. Oliver Gordon reporting there. When the Albanese government won office, one of its promises was delivering a pathway to permanent residency for Pacific Islanders. Now that promise is about to become a reality, with Parliament passing a Pacific Engagement visa. While there's strong support for the scheme, right
3: across the region, there are some reservations, as Dubravka Volada reports. It was three months behind schedule, but it's finally been passed. The Minister for Pacific Affairs and International Development, Pat Conroy.
2: This was a policy we took to the last election and it's revolutionary nature.
3: The proposal to set up a Pacific engagement visa passed through the Senate and the Lower House this week, paving the way for the first permanent migration pathway for Pacific Islanders. In a first for Australia, a lottery system will be used to select 3,000 Pacific Islanders for the scheme each year. Fiji's Deputy Prime Minister Biman Prasad has been an advocate.
4: This visa is part of the broader strategy to integrate the region. In the, in the long term, and given the geopolitics as well, uniting the region uh, through some tangible ways such as this is going to be a very significant move.
3: The proposal is modelled after a similar programme used in New Zealand. Some have voiced fears... The Australian visa scheme could worsen the brain drain in Pacific countries. But Mr Prasad believes it will have the opposite effect.
4: Thinking that somehow, you know, if there is movement of people and suddenly, you know, everybody will pack up their bags, that's not going to happen. In fact, it may create an environment where, you know, people feel that it is that option, you know, that opportunity is always there.
3: Other leaders in the Pacific say the new visa has deeper significance. Former Kiribati President Anote Tong says it's a way of dealing with the threat of displacement, brought on by climate change.
2: There will be some countries which will not have anywhere to relocate to within their own borders. So the only other way to to find somewhere to relocate is beyond the borders. So this is absolutely welcome indeed. It's something that I've been advocating for the last two decades.
3: It's still unclear which countries will be included under the proposal, but it's thought priority will be given to countries with limited migration opportunities to Australia. Mr Tong says Kiribati fits the bill He thinks the ballot should favour countries where it's needed most.
2: There has to be some relationship to the numbers and the, the kind of threats that countries and the people in those countries would be facing.
3: But not everyone's convinced it's a good idea. Executive Director of the Pacific Islands Association of Non-Government Organisations, Emeline Siale Ilulahiya, says seasonal worker programmes have shown removing people from the community has a negative effect on women.
6: When you remove them from the equation of your community, it just double up the, the gender
3: role of women, because they're usually the one that stay behind. Flora Vanu, country manager for the organisation Action Aid Vanuatu, is worried permanent migration might cut ties at home. But she says there's benefits as well. It will also ease some of the land conflicts, being in that place, but they wanted to start a new home, a new life, and they want something different for the family, and that's the human right. The government is planning to have the scheme up and running next year. Bravka
1: Volada, with additional reporting by Kyle Evans. If I said a scrum of nuns in Sydney, would well, you know what I'm talking about? Apparently, that's the nickname for the Opera House. And today marks 50 years since its doors opened to the public for the first time. It is a masterpiece of modern architecture and one of the busiest performing arts precincts in the world. Rachel Hayter took, takes a look back at the history of the house.
7: In mid-century Sydney, even before the promised opera house had a shape, the myth-making had started.
3: We are here to assist in the launching of a concept brave and bold. More than a building, in fact, a shrine.
7: Then New South Wales Premier Joseph Carl lauded international design competition winner, Danish architect Jorn Utzon.
1: I had the opera house in my head like a composer has his symphony, he can anytime uh, go into the symphony and hear it. And that's why I am relatively
3: valuable.
7: (laughs) Construction started in 1959 and involved 10,000 workers. It was expected to take four years, but took 14, The architect's daughter, Lynn, dazzled by her father's vision.
1: It's so magnificent and in a way so obvious. You know, it's like something you've known since all time. Because the building, when you see the construction and the shells, I imagine, I've never seen the pyramids, but I imagine it's the same thing. It's as if it's almost been excavated out of the earth and it's been put there by something that's much greater than... The human being.
7: An analogy made by Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II at the opening on the 20th of October,
6: 1973. The opera house will have something the pyramids never had. It will have life. They were built as tombs, but this building is built to give happiness and refreshment to millions.
7: In the half-century since, the famous Pearl Shells have hosted opera and Oprah, pop stars and the Pope.
3: His Holiness has just gone under the Carl Expressway and he's approaching the Opera House.
7: Mezzo-soprano with Opera Australia, Ruth Strutt is grateful for her very special walk to work. It's such a tourist hub. There's such
6: beautiful views. It's just the
7: quintessential
6: Sydney Vista going to the iconic Opera House. And you think, oh, I'm going to go and perform on that stage. These people don't know that.
7: (laughs) Ruth Strutt has performed on that stage hundreds of times. We are so
6: proud of our opera house. We're so proud to tread the boards there. We are really, really proud of what we do and we're proud of our house.
7: A World Heritage-listed house that's come to symbolise a city for visitors from all over the planet.
6: I've seen it online, you know, you of course you see it on Instagram, but I did not imagine that it would be as beautiful as it is.
1: Sometimes they think in the train, dream, they're dreaming about
6: opera house, they want to touch opera house. It's a beautiful structure and I've always wanted to come here. Feels like you're in Australia.
1: Rachel Hater with that report. That's AM for today. Thanks for your company. I'm Sabra Lane.
7: Hi, I'm Sam Hawley, host of the ABC News Daily podcast. A fortnight since the horrifying attack by Hamas in southern Israel, the war is escalating and the civilian death toll is growing. Today, an expert on urban warfare on the complexities of an expected ground war. Look for the ABC News Daily Podcast on the ABC Listen app.
2: You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.